John Nixon Sr. We've been reading from the book of Acts this week for our devotion, Giovanna and I. Sometimes we just read through a book of the Bible for our devotional time. And we came to the familiar story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You know the story. It's in chapter 8. The eunuch, secretary of the treasury for Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, is returning home from Jerusalem where he has just attended the Passover. He's reading from the book of Isaiah and he's stuck. The spirit tells Philip, go over there and help that man who's trying to understand the word. Now, I was struck by one part of the story that I think is relevant for us as preachers. This is Acts 8. Look what happened when he gets, the Bible says happens here in verse 35. Then Philip began with that very verse of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. I love that. Philip was ready. He was able to interpret the text the man was studying at that moment, having had no prior preparation. Not only that, he was prepared to bounce off that text and launch into the gospel and bring the man to Jesus Christ. Philip was ready. What was the result? You know what happened. The man said, here's some water. Why can't I get baptized? Philip got down, got out of the car, baptized the man. Now here, te- uh, preacher, teacher, is a great and grand ambition for us to be able to start anywhere in the scriptures at any moment, interpret it correctly, and lead people to Jesus Christ. That's worth working toward, isn't it? That's what we're trying to get here, trying to master in uh, Hear Me Now, the preaching podcast. We were started the Sermon on the Mount last time. We noticed that right after the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, which was our focus in the previous podcast, in that same sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus places the law of God under a microscope, revealing its deeper meaning beyond the letter. And if there's anything that reveals our shortcomings as followers of Christ and convinces us we can never make it on our own, it's understanding the spirituality of the law. That's what Christ is doing here in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, as he exposes the spirituality of the law. When we, see the, when we see the law of God the way Jesus sees it, we realize that God's evaluation of us is on a completely different plane than human judgment. And we know we're in trouble without him. We can never please him or meet his standard or his approval on our own. We can't keep God's law spiritually. We don't have the power. This is what Christ is showing us as he exposes the law in Matthew 5. He's showing us that our outward behavior can't save us. And that was an issue in his time. It's an issue now. If we stick to the law based on rules and regulations, we can feel safe. We can even feel superior. We can be excellent rule keepers on our own. We don't need Jesus to be rule keepers. Any person with a strong will can be a strict rule keeper. They can follow regulations to a T. And take pride in it like the Pharisees did. And those two always seem to go together. Uh, This strict obedience, strict rule keeping, and pride. But the spirituality of the law exposes us. When Jesus starts applying the law to our thoughts and our motives, to the inner life, not just our outward deeds, that's when we know we're in trouble. We know we can't be good enough to be saved, not on our own. Not if the law is probing our thoughts and motives and and inner life. 
I don't even know everything that's in my heart. We're not even clear about our true motives most of the time. We have to ask Jesus to look into our hearts and purify our motives because all kinds of selfishness and pride and defensiveness and hang-ups, they're all down in there and we don't even see it. That's what Christ is showing us in the Sermon on the Mount. He's showing us the spirituality of the law and our unfitness to live up to it on our own. So, back to Matthew 5, where we started last time, and I want to take a few minutes on verses 21 and 22. And we know here, I said last time, Christ is taking the different laws and commandments. He's telling what it used to mean or what we thought it meant. And he's showing us what it means now, what it means in him, what he reveals about it. So 21 and 22, he says, You've heard that our ancestors said long ago, you must not murder. Okay, sixth commandment, right? Murder. I'm okay there. I haven't murdered anybody, so I'm okay. And if Jesus would just stop right there, I'd be okay. I haven't murdered anybody. But I know he's not going to stop there because of the way he put it. We saw this last time. He has this motif. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. So here he goes now, verse 22. He's continuing. But I say to you, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of hell fire. That's it for me. I'm exposed now. I can never again claim that I've kept the sixth commandment on my own. It's not a matter of just murder. Christ brings in anger, he brings in cursing, and he says hell fires on the end of it. Now, I have expressed and felt the kind of anger Jesus is indicting here. When it happened to me, I called it temper. Oh, I lost my temper. Well, I lost it for a minute, but Jesus calls it murder. It's hard. Are you following me now? It's hard. The law of God is hard on us. Don't mistake that. The law is spiritual. Romans 7, 14, the law is spiritual. We are unspiritual. So it probes and examines the inner life and it exposes us. The law is hard on us. But Jesus says even anger. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger, righteous indignation. It's not what Christ is talking about here. When we are angry for God's honor, not just our pride, that is righteous anger, anger, not our petty stuff. When David got fighting mad with Goliath, right, struck him down, took off his head, that was righteous anger. Goliath is blustering about, cursing Israel, cursing Israel's God. Saul and the army just standing there. David walks up and he can't take it. Who who is this heathen who defiles the armies of the living God? He's angry for God's honor. He can't take it. It's righteous indignation. And he takes action to defend the name of God. And when he comes to Goliath, he says, I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. He didn't come in his own name. I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, he said. Righteous anger for God's honor. That's not our stuff. Not the kind of anger we show. See? Christ's not talking about all kinds of anger. There's another example. An example of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. And he was angry when he did it. The Bible says he made a whip out of cords, swung it at those devils. You know, they were robbing people in God's house. He chased them out. But it wasn't a temper tantrum like we have. John 2 describes it. John 2, that's my Bible, 13 to 17. I know it's 13. Here it is. 
When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. They were just exchanging money. They were, they were cheating the folks with the exchange. Okay. So, he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Jesus was angry at what the people did of what the people did. But his anger was for God's honor and for the honor of God's house. Righteous indignation. In fact, you could argue that in this case, indifference would have been the sin, not anger. How could Christ come into his father's house? Watch folks being cheated like that, stolen from, as they're coming to try and worship and not get angry about it. I heard one preacher say, it's just as bad to be cold in a hot matter as it is to be hot in a cold matter. Jesus saw a hot matter and he couldn't be cold about it. So he chased the money changes out. That's uh, John 2, verse 17 says, it concludes like this. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. See, it was zeal for God's house. The disciples were remembering Psalm 69.9. The whole verse reads this way. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. That's standing up for God and for God's honor. Do we do that? It doesn't always have to be turning over tables, but when we hear God being dishonored, do we stand up for God? It's not what Christ is talking about in Matthew 5. When he equates anger with murder, he's not talking about that. He's talking about our stuff, our selfish anger, our jealousy, our over, when we're overly sensitive, when we're defensive, when we're irritable, we fly off the handle. That's what he's talking about. So that's it for me. I have to shut up. I can no, no, longer, no longer claim that I have perfectly kept the sixth commandment. I may not even have realized it before, but I realize it now. The spirituality of the law has exposed me. I have to stop bragging about the commandments. I'm not as good as I thought I was. Christ is exposing me in his sermon. And as he exposes me, he elevates the law. Do you know why? Because when I view the law of God as rules and regulations, I diminish it. I trivialize it. And I make it dismissible because you can always find a loophole to get around a regulation. So Christ elevates the law when he shows its spirituality. It's more than just rules. That's what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 42, 21, when he says, the Lord, is, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. That's what Christ is doing. Restoring the honor of the law by magnifying it to reveal its spirituality. It's not just a bunch of rules and regulations I can get around with loopholes and diversions and misdirections. We have to face it, see the true reflection of ourselves in it, and run to Jesus for his righteousness because we know we can never live up to it. I'm just rooting around now in the Sermon on the Mount, rooting around looking for a better understanding. By the way, I came across something else this week. As I think about it, it was in devotional time as well, family devotion. 
You remember when we were looking at uh, Matthew 5, 23 and 24 last time we were reading through it. We took note of the fact that Jesus says, if you realize your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the temple, go be reconciled to them, and then come back. We noticed that it says they have something against you, not you have something against them. We kind of seized on that. I'll check this out now. <clears throat> In Mark eleven twenty five, it says, this is Christ speaking too, and whenever you stand praying, if you, have anything, if you have anything against anyone, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. See? Matthew 5, it's they have something against you. Mark 11, you have something against them. So it's not a matter of who has what against whom. That's the kind of nitpicking that we do. But the law is spiritual. It has to do with the heart. The point is, there's something unsettled between me and my brother or sister. Something is not right. So I have to go settle that before I can come to God and offer him sincere, uh, pure worship. I need to take care of that thing. That's what Jesus is teaching. That's the spirituality of the law. And so it's not a matter of uh, working harder to become a better commandment keeper, being more careful how I talk to my brother or sister. That's not the focus here. We can't work our way into righteousness or purity, however noble our intentions may be. It's not a matter of working harder at it. Right? Somebody wrote, can't think of the name of the book right now. Uh, he wrote, the remedy for sin is not virtue. The remedy for sin is grace. I can't work my way into being a better person. It doesn't happen. It's not a matter of working harder at the commandments. That's what Christ is showing us. It's a matter of surrendering to Jesus. He's the one, the only one, the only one alone, who is the perfect commandment keeper. And get this now, his salvation. He offers his righteousness in exchange for my confessed sin. That's where salvation comes. And that's what Christ is leading us to in the Sermon on the Mount as he exposes the spirituality of the law. To righteousness by faith in him and his finished work on our behalf. He's already done what we can never do. He's the perfect commandment keeper. He offers to give us credit for his commandment keeping in exchange for our confessed sin. Now, Christ goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to touch on a number of things. We read them last time. He talks about the sin of lust, of trivializing marriage. He talks about oath-taking and answering evil with good. You know, he says, turn the other cheek. But I want to stay with this Sixth Commandment thing for a little bit longer. And thou shalt not murder thing. Now, in my Bible, the index takes me to 1 John 3, which expands on this same teaching of Christ regarding the nature of the Sixth Commandment. You know, the epistles explain the Gospels. 1 John 3, 11 to 15. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Okay? We see now we're getting back to what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 5. Cain got angry, but it wasn't righteous indignation. He killed his brother, but it wasn't righteous indignation. Look at his motive. First John 3 continues. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. The Bible reveals his motive. 
And we see why it equates hatred with, hatred with murder. Because the motive is the same. The law is spiritual. It has to do with the heart. First John 3 goes on. We know we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Jesus says, if you curse him, if you're angry with him, you're a murderer. Here, 1 John 3 says, if you hate him, you're a murderer. You may not have picked up a stone and struck anybody in the head, but the inner intent counts the same as the outward deed with God, so we cannot escape the constant need for repentance. When we hate each other, even if our hatred is not expressed violently, then we are like Cain. And Cain's the first murderer. So, Christ elevates the commandments to the point that only, not only can none of us claim to be commandment keepers without him, but also none of us can claim, can claim to be above the other. We're all in the same boat. What does Romans 3.23 say? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'm not better than you because I try to keep the commandments and you don't even try. Because inwardly, we have the same condition. All have sinned. And that's what God measures. He matches the heart. Now, if it all seems impossible to the point of being discouraging, it is. When we understand the spirituality of the law of the spiritual dimension, we end up asking ourselves, well, can anybody be saved? How can anybody make it? It's discouraging. It can be overwhelming. Why even try? Well, let me share um, some commentary with you on the Sermon on the Mount from a book by Oswald Chambers. The book is entitled Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me address some of this feeling that we're having as we understand this. Here's what he writes. Jesus never teaches us to curb or suppress the wrong disposition. Think about that now. That's what we do. That's all we can do. Try to suppress those feelings. Curb them, control them ourselves, and it doesn't work. It doesn't last. That's not what Christ calls us to do, says Chambers. Continuing. He gives us a totally new disposition. He alters the mainspring of action. Hey, that's the heart. Our Lord's teaching can never be interpreted Excuse me. Our Lord's teaching can be interpreted only by the new spirit he puts in. It can never be taken as a series of rules and regulations. That's what I've been trying to say. We read it as regulations, we're reading it the wrong way. It can only be interpreted spiritually. You see it? Bless the Lord. Jesus, makes, Jesus doesn't make us responsible for what we can't even see. He doesn't require us to do what he knows we can't do. He does it in us. Our part is to surrender to him and let him do it. Chambers, still going on with this quote. Deliverance from sin is not deliverance from conscious sin only. Hear this now. It's deliverance from sin in God's sight. And he can see down into a region I know nothing about. See? God is not wholly responsible for something I can't even see. But he sees, and he sends his spirit deep down within to purify what we can't even touch. 
and we can't even explain. We don't even know how it works. It's God's work in us, which he performs the moment we repent and surrender our lives to him. That's our part. Deliverance from unconscious sin. That's God's doing. We're not even aware of. We don't even know what that is. Okay, some more here. We must know him as Savior first. Before his teaching can have any meaning for us, or before it can have any meaning other than that of an ideal that leads to despair. That's what I was talking about, being discouraged. You understand, although you get discouraged, I can never live up to this. So he's saying here, if we don't know him as Savior first, we're going to be in despair. Continuing, if Jesus is a teacher only, then all he can do is tantalize us by erecting a standard we can't come anywhere near. So either we get discouraged with me. Hear me now. Here's my interpretation. Either we get discouraged or we pretend. We fake it. Either way, we don't have God's joy and peace within us. Because we're faking it. We know we are. Or we just give up and say, I can never do this. So we just give it up. Either way, we're not in God's will. So look at this now. So he he says Jesus is just tantalizing us by telling us to do something he knows we can't do. That's, that's That's like taking a prize or... A treat, holding it high enough that we can't reach it. And we're jumping, we're jumping, it's just beyond our reach. That, that's tantalizing. Why would Jesus do something like that to us? He wouldn't. Okay, conclude this, this quote now. But, if by being born again from above, we know him first as Savior, we know that he did not come to teach us only. He came to make us what he teaches we should be glory to God. <laughs> Amen. Praise the Lord. He came to teach us what he commands us to be. The Sermon on the Mount then is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his way with us. Wow. That gives an entirely new perspective on the whole thing. Now I have hope. I don't have to be all those things Jesus talks about that I know I can never be on my own. My part is to surrender to him. And the words of Chambers, let the Holy Spirit have his way in me. When I do that, then I know I can live a life that pleases God. Not because of my deeds, but because of Christ's spirit and his grace and his, his righteousness that covers me. So that becomes my goal. That's the direction of my life now and from now on as I walk with Jesus. Now, with this understanding, we can face this sermon and have hope. Let's continue it then next time. Until then, preacher, keep humble. Be faithful. I leave my